James Rosenbirch is a startup founder working on remaking how we build organizations and improving the success rate of young companies. He graduated from the University of Toronto in 2013 with a degree in neuroscience, social cultural anthropology, and electrical engineering. Prior to founding his currently in stealth startup, James turned around a billion dollar publicly traded biotech company, scaled the operations of multiple startups, and developed technologies in the public sector to improve the efficiency of the Canadian healthcare system and adapt and respond to climate change. James, thanks so much for coming on to Letters from a Contrarian. That's my absolute pleasure. So question number one, why study anthropology and what value do liberal arts majors have in today's economy? That's a good question. Um, so I'm going to take it from a, like a startup founder's mentality. Uh, let's say you want to create and sell a tool. A successful tool has two parts. There's the tool itself and the user. The STEM degree teaches you how to make the tool work. And the liberal arts degree tells you how to make the tool work for the user. So for humanities, this means telling compelling narratives. For social science, this means understanding the user's needs and making sure they're met. Uh, with respect to anthropology, anthro is a, a bit of a weird discipline because its core ethos is to understand what unites us as human beings through our edge cases. So there's an old saying that anthropology makes the familiar strange, showing how the things we take for granted aren't actually human universals. It's also fundamentally humanist discipline because it starts from the assumption that people are generally rational and so we have to understand the internal logic of why they do what they do. So as a toolkit, it's incredibly powerful because it lets you walk into any environment and take apart how it works and it teaches you to spot things that everyone else takes for granted. Gotcha. Do you think that people who are graduating with liberal arts degrees in Canada's economy who are having trouble finding jobs in tech are simply unaware of how they could apply their skills or is it something else? Oh, no, absolutely. I think there's a, I think we do a poor job of helping people adapt to uh, the direction the economy is heading in right now and to the, the new technologies that are emerging. And I think a lot of, especially the liberal arts and humanities programs are oriented more towards the um, kind of pre-internet model of how you go and do advertising work or writing work or so on. And so when people graduate with their degree, they're kind of dropped in the middle of an entirely changed world that they're not particularly adapted to. And so it's the ones that have kind of self-taught in how the new technologies work or how certain aspects of the market are working that are able to find their path more easily. Whereas what we need to do is A, as technologists, show more people what components go into building new companies, new products, new systems, and how that requires different backgrounds to build more effective enterprises. And then on the other side, uh, actually you know, filling the gap of knowledge translation. Like, okay, you know how to write. How do you apply that to tell better stories about what the future is going to look like with this new technology? Or uh, you've studied human psychology. Okay, how are you going to apply that to make sure that uh, a product is actually meeting a user's need? Gotcha. All right. And you also worked in Canada's healthcare system. Uh, what things did you change your mind about after doing so? Oh, um, I'd actually start by saying I 
I worked in health in Canada's healthcare system, but I also worked for a while in biotech. And from the biotech side, I'd say the first, the biggest thing I re I learned was just how little doctors understand about the human body and how much they rely on their credentials to mask it. When you work in pharma, you kind of realize that it's the pharmacologists and the biologists and, and the scientists that actually have the understanding of the human body. And we kind of just tell the doctors what to do and they just take our word for it. <laughs> With respect to the Canadian healthcare system, I'd say it's how fucked our incentive system is. We don't have enough doctors, but we can't, the government can't increase the supply because they don't have any control over the cap, which is set by the CMA, which is the doctor's union. So if the government uses the only lever they have, which is put more money into the system, it doesn't result in more doctors. It just results in more pay for the incumbent senior doctors. Like uh, I remember early in my career, uh, before I moved out of healthcare, I, I worked with doctors who would choose to work you know, two, three, four X overtime, putting their patients at risk just so they could make some extra money and go buy a yacht. It's messed up. So what about if the Canadian government were to, Im to bring in more doctors from out of country? Do you think that would help the problem or they would I mean, face this the accreditation is issue? Well, that's the thing. They don't have control over the accreditation either. That's also handled by CMA. So what you end up with is the government attracts all these people to come to Canada with, who are highly skilled, highly credentialized, um, usually highly accomplished in whatever countries they're coming from. And then they get here and the professional bodies don't provide any pathway for them to translate their skills to what's needed in the economy. And usually that's so that they can preserve an artificial cap so they can maintain higher pay in whatever venue it is, usually with doctors. So we can attract all the people we want, but then they get here and they end up having to be security guards or um, taxi drivers or Uber drivers. I, I'll give you an example. There was a doctor I worked with, brilliant, brilliant man, literally led, uh, was a senior professor of emergency medicine at a university in his home country. And he came here and they wouldn't recognize his credentials in spite of him being like an internationally recognized scholar of emergency medicine. And he got hired for $15 an hour working as a lab assistant and had to go through the accreditation all over again in spite of the fact that Again, he's an internationally recognized scientist who didn't wasn't just a practicing doctor, but also was a teacher in the field. And it's all because our system is blocked by these institutions that are entirely self-interested. And our government can't do much about it because they're not the accrediting body. So I have no idea how the legislation beneath it all works, but I know for lawyers they have their governing they have like the law society act for each province couldn't governments also do the same with the medical society act for each province as well change it such that they have more control over the supply of doctors they could try um again i'm, I'm not a health policy expert so i couldn't get too deep into the details of it but what i will say is a, that requires a lot of political will from the government, which we don't have 
It requires taking on one of the most powerful lobbies in the country, which is the CMA, and literally taking the shit of being turned into like the biggest villain in the country for doing it. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the early history of uh, universal healthcare in Canada, but when we first, when the government first said, you know, starting with Tommy Douglas, that we were going to inter- that they were going to introduce a national healthcare system, which is essentially a private healthcare system with a single payer that's the government on top. Um, the doctors who wanted to maintain their high pay and their monopoly over the service fought so hard that they would actually go on boycotts of like they, they'd go on strike they would boycott serving patients they would march in the streets to be like no there's no way we're going to accept having a single-payer system because we won't make as much and it took decades of the government taking the shit and um just holding its position for the cma to eventually give in and, and you know now we're over 50, 60, 70 years later, and they're pushing to go to a two-tier system. And the worst part is, I know plenty of doctors that don't agree with the position of the CMA, but in order to remain doctors, they have to keep paying their dues to an organization they don't agree with. And so they'll go out and they'll publicly advocate against what the CMA is doing, but they still have to pay it. Because if they don't, they're not a doctor. Right. Damn. So, yeah. <laughs> I guess this is one of the um, downsides of systems as well as the upsides where they're not very flexible and they kind of run by themselves and there's not much you can do to change it once you start, once they start. Well, I think they're, I mean, everything is a system. The, the difference is whether we recognize that it's a system or we don't. And once you're, you take the time and, and say, okay, well, so it's, this is obviously working in a systematic way and you start to unpack it. That is the one thing that actually helps you find angles of attack and figure out what to do about it. So I think approaching these problems with the perspective of, okay, no, this is a system and I'm going to understand how it works, understand why it's producing the outcomes that it's producing, and then use that to figure out what's the one little attack point I can hit to actually have an impact. That's probably the best way to have change in, in a society as complex as ours. And just to wrap up healthcare, would you have any um, weak points that you could point to in the healthcare system that a policymaker might be interested in? Oh, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, I think there's a lot you can do with better technology and better processes. Um, and there are, there are huge teams of engineers out of the universities, including my alma mater, U of T, that are like sending armies of engineers into the hospitals to try to improve how they do things internally. And they face a lot of resistance from the doctors. But our current hospital system is designed as A, an acute care system. So it was designed for an era where you needed hospitals to like sew people back up and reattach limbs and, and all that stuff. And now we have an aging population where the biggest problem is um, today it's viruses, but it's also like cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's and all these long-term chronic conditions that require an entirely different type of care. And so 
they've tried to adapt an acute care system to chronic care conditions when the system was literally designed as almost like a, a factory assembly line where people come in, they get patched up and they got sent in their way. And they've tried to tweak and adjust that like really inflexible mechanical system to turn it into something that is able to sustain and support people. Whereas what we have to do is redesign how our hospital systems work and be willing to experiment with different structures of providing care that allow us to split the different needs that are faced by different groups of patients and again, run experiments on different ways of servicing those needs in a way that allows us to find what works best. Nobody's actually figured out how to provide a consistent um, solution to chronic care issues. But what we tend to do in Canada is kind of look at what everyone else is doing and copy whoever is doing it the best, whereas what we have to do is put ourselves out ahead, run the experiments, try out different try out different systems and be willing to accept that they might fail, they might not work, they might not hit their benchmarks until we find what works. And that takes will and leadership and a desire to actually experiment. It, it also sounds quite risky to do so. And that brings me to the next topic, which is entrepreneurship. My sense of entrepreneurship, and I don't have a very deep one because I haven't really worked in Canada. I work remotely for, I've only worked remotely for American companies, but my sense here is that um, entrepreneurship is less developed in Canada as it is in the US. And it seems like it's less valued here, risk-taking in general. Do you know why that is, or is that the case? Um, I actually think the Americans are slowly starting to have similar problems to us. And their overall rate of entrepreneurship has been gradually decreasing since the 1960s. And a lot of that comes from the fact that we moved from a very entrepreneurial social model to a model of large firms that would like, you'd go in as a young worker, they train you, you'd stay there your entire life, they give you a pension. Um, then by the time this we hit the 70s or 80s, that system transitioned into, okay, you might get kicked out on your ass, uh, you know, after a few years when your job gets outsourced. But we didn't have A, an alternate model to supplant people, and B, we had created not just the organization structure, but the, the supporting government structure around it in such a way that um, the needs of those incumbent organizations were met and any opportunity to build competitors was disincentivized. So both in the US and Canada, one example of this is that uh, you can't get an employment insurance if you're going to start your own company. It's only if you're searching for a job at another, at another incumbent organization. And the reason for this is uh, one of the heads of the New York Department of Labor once explained to me is that they were lobbied hard by incumbents to make that the rule so that people leaving their jobs wouldn't start potential competitors. In Canada, this is much worse because we're a smaller country with larger monopolies. So this means that many, many more opportunities that could exist for new entrants to create competitive companies are being boxed out by a monopoly 
organization or monopoly corporations, and B, regulatory capture, where the law, um, the resources required for starting up, and market access are all controlled by two to three companies. And this is true whether it's in telecoms with Bell, Rogers, Telus, or in grocery with Loblaws controlling almost all of our food supply. And when on top of that, they're being subsidized by the government, it creates so many more hurdles for a company because you're not just fighting against a, a Goliath, you're fighting against a Goliath that's being directly fed by our tax dollars. So as much as people may want to start companies, um, the difficulty of doing so successfully is more substantial than it ought to be on the one hand, and B, um, because A, cost of living is as high as it is in Canada now, and B, we are culturally quite fond of our credentials, um, if you have an opportunity to go take a job that will help you potentially afford a house in a few years, or go and take a risk that A, could put you behind your peers, and B, uh, leave you in a position where you are stuck renting, not able to buy a home, not able to afford raising a family, et cetera, et cetera, a few years down the line, why would you take that risk when you there's a much safer option for you. And we're have seen a similar version of this in the United States where um, high experience accredited founders are, or potential founders are being attracted to work at FANG companies and the salary band of working in a FANG job is going so far up to the point that you can make half a million dollars a year for working as a software engineer or you know, a senior software engineer that literally they're paying people to sit around so they don't found potential companies and if you have the option to go sit on your ass and make half a million dollars or to go take on a huge risk that could uh you know basically leave you bankrupt and a failure uh why would you take one over the like why would you take the latter over the former so it's not just a question of culture as much as it is a question of what are the incentives and what are we nudging people for towards and how difficult are we making it for someone who has an idea to actually feel comfortable taking the leap and trying to turn it into reality. It sounds almost as if mon like big monopolies are drugging would-be entrepreneurs with big salaries so that they mm -hmm. aren't starting new companies. And this is happening in the US, but since Canada has um, bigger monopolies, uh, it's happening here too. Yeah, I would say the salary aspect of it is um, more of the case in the United States um, in tech, because that's where most of the tech giants are. Whereas in Canada, it's um, more, it, that's part of the equation, but the salaries aren't as high here. So the other side of it is just the general instability of being able to afford anything in the market, at which point it's like, oh, and then I would add another issue in Canada, which is the availability of capital. Um, in the United States, part of the reason why the tax salaries are as high as they are is because they're competing with cheap money and a large amount of cheap money that founders can prospect, potentially go get to 
actually start a company. And so they have to raise the counter incentive. In Canada, we have a very undeveloped angel investor network. We don't have very many venture capitalists slowly changing as American VCs enter into the Canadian ecosystem. But the bar set by most of the angel investors in Canada is so high that basically they would expect you to have a series A or series B post-product market fit company that uh, has a million users or something already paying you before they're willing to give you an angel check. Whereas the angel checks are what are actually needed at the beginning of the startup founding process to get you on your feet to begin with. So when the capital is not available and the risk is super high and you're weighing options between being able to buy a house and start a family and not being able to buy a house and start a family, um, the risk is just too high for most accomplished and credentialed people in Canada to pursue. That's quite depressing. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Um, it's more, if we can recognize that this is the problem and this is how it works, then it allows, like I said, it allows us to identify potential angles of attack. So one would be um, lowering, increasing access to angel investment. And there are some programs the government's introduced um, to increase like Series A, Series B growth capital. But if we can further incentivize people to put money into early stage startups, then that would lower the risk bar because it would give more people access to the starting capital they need. Um, if, again, if we were to lower the cost of living for more people, that would create more opportunity uh, for people to take risk. And if we um, created more opportunities to recognize the accomplishments of startup founders so that it's not actually that they're taking an off-ramp from their career, but they're actually like the skills that they build as entrepreneurs are being recognized as skills that then allow them to switch back into the career track should their, uh, their business fail. That would also reduce the risk inherent to starting a business again. Fair enough. So identifying it structurally allows us to find potential opportunities to address the underlying problem. Um, what makes, so we were having a discussion um, about a year ago about contrarianism because you posted a tweet and then I said something and then we moved it to DMs and, and you had mentioned that contrarians or people, yeah, I guess contrarians make for good entrepreneurs. Um, do you still think that's the case? And if so, why? I think contrarianism is a little weird in the internet age because there's no single hegemonic narrative that you can be contrary to. There's kind of so many different points and positions of people of beliefs that people have. And so, um, yes, you can place yourself in opposition to a particular narrative, but what's most important uh, is to be able to A, notice opportunity that others don't and act on it, and B, be willing to accept that, especially until you've established 
until you've basically found success, uh, most people aren't going to believe in you. Most people aren't going to agree that you've picked a good direction. And you're willing to put up with the slings and arrows of pain of that. And I think if we had to modernize the de definition of a contrarian, it would be that you are um, willing to put up with that pain and willing to take a risk on something that other people don't see because that's where the reward comes from. Gotcha. And so that's basically what most entrepreneurs do. Uh, so that makes sense. Ideally. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I, I said this on, uh, I think I tweeted about this a little while ago, but um, we're in a little bit of a weird place again because of this, uh, the way monopolies have distorted the market that in addition to companies being founded um, as companies, there are especially hard tech companies that are coming out whose entire purpose is to like uh, subsidize research that will eventually be acquired by Google, Apple, Tesla, you know, one of the, the big companies. So their goal isn't actually like they don't put any thought into business model. They don't put any thought into um, marketability or how they're going to actually build a company out of it. It's just, hey, we have a cool technology. Can you line us up with a potential buyer and we'll get it to a point where they're willing to pay for it and just buy the company outright. That, you know, tons and tons and tons of examples of that from DeepMind to you know, Boston Dynamics to go down the list of <laughs> most hard tech companies these days. And that was another Twitter debate slash exchange that we had where you said monopolies we're not good for innovation. And then I said something like, they are because what ends up happening is a lot of startups um, start to to like build stuff with the hopes of being acquired by um, big monopolies later on. And now you're mentioning research as well. Um, and then your response to that was um, that there are many companies who just get patents so that they can prevent other people from competing with them. Um, and they're not actually making anything productive to. Um, and adding to the economy. Yeah, I mean, IBM's universally known as the world's biggest patent troll because they have huge swathes of engineers who basically spend all day sitting up, sitting around, dreading up uh, technologies that could come out, writing patents for them, filing those patents, and then when a new startup comes up with a relatively similar idea and actually builds the thing and brings it to market, then IBM can come out of the woodwork and be like, see, you stole our idea. We're going to you know, sue the pants off you until you start paying us royalties. Or you let us buy you outright for a cheap price or bleed you dry or what have you. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is everyone, like the Google graveyard and the Facebook graveyard are fairly well-known phenomena where these monopolies come in, they'll buy up and coming new technologies that people are really excited about that are really starting to take hold in the market and then they kill it and they kill it because it's a prospective competitor and so when you have monopolies that are too powerful you end up in a position where the amount of choice in the market decreases because any choice that is a sufficiently good option to threaten the incumbents will get shut down by the incumbents so um, Lena Khan, the new uh, Federal Trade Commissioner, put, this, uh, put it this way, 
with respect to WhatsApp recently, which is that consumers cared about privacy. And so a lot of consumers went to use WhatsApp because they were promised end-to-end -end encryption. And then Facebook acquired WhatsApp and Facebook promised, we're gonna keep the end-to-end -end encryption around. And then they worked tirelessly to, un to break apart that encryption, remove it from the equation and link all of the communication that happens inside WhatsApp to the central servers that are used by every other Facebook apparatus that can then be used to generate and uh, generate advertising data that they could use for revenue. And so the choice that consumers had for a privacy-preserving social media option existed very briefly, but were not was not allowed to exist as a continuous part of the market as an option because of the market distortions caused by a monopoly, whose interests were counter to those of the consumer. And so this is some of the new thinking that's coming out of the antitrust area now, which is that um, the old thinking is that consumers are harmed by prices increasing when a monopoly takes over and then can jack up the price because there's no one to compete with it. And now the idea is, well, maybe we pay price it, we maybe pay the cost of it in more than just money. Mm -hmm. Maybe we pay the cost in terms of the number of options we have available or privacy. the types of technology, privacy, the types of technology we want to use. Um, the experience we want to have using a particular technology. And so then it becomes, well, what's the potential, like, what's the opportunity gap between what could have been available on the market, were this anomaly not there, and what we actually have? And that's where they really interfere with uh, the opportunities available to startups. One last question about. Um Canada-U.S. differences is Canada's, um, I think it's called antitrust, where they break up big companies. Is our antitrust regime stronger or weaker than the U.S.'s? Oh, it's weak. It is so toothless um, that it basically doesn't exist here. Um, and a huge part of that is, you know, we have only a handful of parties and their biggest donors are the people who run the largest monopolies. Um, the mayor of Toronto sits on the board of Rogers. Like, there's not much you can do in that circumstance because the people, like the government have a revolving door between working as public representatives, working for these companies. And so they're not gonna shoot themselves in the foot by depriving themselves of potential paychecks and opportunities in the future. And now it started with just these like homegrown monopolies, but now American tech monopolies are getting into the action too. So um, Facebook is hiring ex you know, cabinet members to work for them in Canada and the UK, elsewhere, to get ahead of the government and prevent any privacy protection or consumer protection regulation from coming through and protecting us. That's sad. Um. Yeah, it is. Um, I will say that uh, I was happy to see antitrust become part of the conversation this most recent election cycle in Canada. Uh, one thing I'll say about Canada is we tend to uh, 
follow what the Americans do very closely. Uh, we don't necessarily innovate on policy ourselves as much as we do um, wait for the Americans to try it, and if it works, we'll do it ourselves. Uh, and so if what Lina Khan is doing in the U.S. does prove to be successful, then we might end up with antitrust policy with 14, because the example has been shown, and Canadians look to the Americans and are like, hey, look, they've done it, it works, why can't we do that here? And then there's more pressure on politicians to actually do something. But it's a matter of will, and it's a matter of a desire to experiment and do things differently, because what we're doing right now doesn't work. What do you think the likelihood of a populist uprising against monopolies um, is? Um, I think depends what you mean by populist uprising, right? Um, if people are, I think if, for, let's take the example of Loblaws. If Loblaws, as the monopoly that controls our food supply, were to jack up prices to the point that nobody could afford food, the vast majority of people couldn't afford food, then you'd probably get riots in the streets. Um, but because of regulatory capture, we're in a situation where uh, the companies could increase the cost and the government is concerned about their own stability. And so the government will subsidize the higher costs set by the supplier in order to maintain stability. And the supplier gets away with the higher prices. We've had this in dairy, we've had this in bread, we've are having this in, in general grocery now that we have monopoly in space. Um, and so I would say because there's this feedback mechanism between the state and the monopolies, whose core purpose is to maintain stability of the system, uh, the likelihood of that is relatively low. Right. Because the preconditions that would cause such an uprising to occur are being headed off at the pass, again, by our tax dollars. Right. So it's only until people are no longer able to afford their groceries and, and other things when they start to notice that this, like, they start to notice the, the bottom causes uh, for, for why their prices are so high. Um, I Actually, I don't think it's necessarily that people don't realize that that's what's happening. Everyone's complained about the telecom companies and how they jack up the prices. Everyone hates Bell and Rogers. It's like, fuck them, and yet still pays the bills because they're the only options. Um, but people don't have a viable alternative put in front of them. And so that alternative, A, could come from the market in terms of a new competitor that's entering that um, I, you know, I, I'm on a, a competitor telecom provider where I am that started out as a commercial provider of fiber optic services and then moved into uh, residential distribution in a way that monopolies didn't expect. So there's the market approach. And the other approach is to actually put proposals forward and acquaint more of the population with, okay, you may know the problem, but here's what we can do about it and start to build pressure and you know, hopefully get legislation out of it or uh, 
encourage new entrants to enter and be supported by the desire of the market to see change. Corporations have become very, very powerful. Um, were they always meant to be as powerful as, as they are right now? And how were they started? Oh, corporations are an interesting one. So going back to, um, in Europe, corporations started as literally they had a, a charter that was provided by the king or queen to say, okay, we're going to give you money and the rights to do X. So for example, Hudson's Bay Company, who were supposed to like come here and gather fur for the fur trade. Um, or the Dutch East Indies Company, who went to Indonesia and completely fucked things up over there. <laughs> and so that was kind of a prehistory of the corporation. In the United States, the early, and by corollary here as well, the early history of the corporation was the government would give a mandate to a group of individuals to accomplish a task with a social purpose. So that could be, uh, you know, building a courthouse or uh, establishing a trade route or building a railroad or anything of that sort. And the charter would be a mission that the company was held to. And every, I think it was 10 years, they would have to go and apply, might have been eight, they would have to go and apply to have that charter renewed so they'd be allowed to continue operating because they're still fulfilling their mission. So corporations started as temporary apparatuses with an explicit purpose where they could, uh, where they were being measured against, were they accomplishing that mission or not, and were given the latitude to operate on the basis of were they meeting their objectives that they made public. Now, somewhere along the way. And sorry, the, hold really, on. This is happening. Uh, the reason why people just couldn't come together themselves and, and um, aim for a mission was because they didn't have the money. This was only happening because the king was providing the money, right? Well, that was that was in the king's case, but in the U.S., uh, in the U.S. example, it was yeah they were getting um, the state to provide the money uh, right. to accomplish a particular goal, or they were getting access to land or resources that they otherwise wouldn't have access to, gotcha. and so the corporate structure existed to. Um, essentially hold of the resource and attribute that resource to a purpose and then have a, a legal mechanism accountability to make sure that the resource that was provided for X purpose was actually being used by like group of people to accomplish that purpose. Now somewhere in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, there was an innovation in how corporations worked in the US, which is that your um, purpose, they, they allowed the purpose of the corporation to be literally the phrase, a cor this corporation will do anything a corporation is allowed to do. At which point they became these um, flexible money generating entities that lost their sense of social purpose. And increasingly became more and more about generating profit for profit's sake, which then got you know, accelerated with the rise of um, the Chicago School in the 70s, where they then provided a moral justification for profit for profit's sake. Because even up 
in that period from the early 1900s to the 1970s or so, there was still an idea that, well, it may not be our core mission to have a social purpose, but we have a responsibility to society because society is allowing us to exist and you know, gain profit off. Now what we're seeing, as a lot of people look into this history and um, rediscover it, is a slow return to the idea that, okay, no, companies should have a public-facing mandate and a responsibility to the society that imbues them with power and the ability to generate wealth, and they should help be held accounted, accountable to it. So, um, you know, to some degree, we see this uh, in a bottoms-up approach from activism, holding corporations more accountable. But what I think is a lot more interesting is um, on the corporate governance side, we're seeing advocacy from lawyers and scholars and academics and you know, top financiers, even those two explain capital people that just wrote a book on this called It's Accountable, uh, where the idea is, okay, our companies aren't serving, the companies aren't serving society. And that is beginning to accrue costs that are actually becoming bad for the production of more capital and more profit within the market. And so if we can get more of these businesses to pay attention to A, the externalities of their actions, and B, uh, make their purpose more explicit, then that will allow us to control for the negative impacts that these companies are having, as well as head off potential, you know, from a corporate angle, um, it's a preventative measure that prevents more aggressive legislation from coming down the pipe. Because if you if you say, okay, well, we're going to regulate ourselves, and we're going to make sure that it doesn't get so bad that you feel the need to regulate us, then they protect themselves from even stricter controls being put in place. So we're starting to see this change happen we're starting to see a conversation emerge of how do corporations actually identify and hold themselves accountable to a social purpose? And what does that look like? How does that change how a corporation structured? Does that mean that there are, um, that, the mem that the membership of the company has representation on the board? Does this mean that other stakeholders gain representation of the board of the business after it gets past a certain size. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up and, and see how the idea of the corporation gets transformed anew based on the needs of today's society. That is really interesting. I haven't heard how how... I hadn't heard that first part about how corporations existed at the will of the state, more or less. Um, that was really interesting. And it's also not a you're free to do anything until you're restricted. It's more of a you are free only to do to to pursue this purpose. And that's changed. That's that's really interesting. Um, OK. And is there a political philosophy uh, that corporations share other than we should pursue our mission. I mean the. Or uh, the other thing. Yes. I should also say with corporations, I was reading Nassim Taleb and he mentioned how democracy or America is like a democracy 
when you look at it from the outside when it comes to like governance. But if you look at the people who are actually living their day-to-day lives, most of them work in corporations and those aren't democratic organizations. They're more like fascistic because it's like top down. So yeah, I'll, I'll add that. Um, within organization science, so there's kind of this nexus of anthropology and sociology and law and management theory and you know, accounting and all these different applied and social science disciplines that study how organizations work, what makes them work, what makes them more efficient, what makes them break. Uh, there has been a consensus that we have created this huge contradiction in our society between social values that are democratic. Everyone has a voice, everyone has access to opportunity. Um, everyone is, is should have the autonomy to choose their own work and their own direction in life on the one hand. And then the structure of our organizations, which are very much, no, you are a cog in a machine, you have very little autonomy, we're going to tell you what to do. Um, your voice doesn't necessarily matter. And so the contradiction that is generated between a society that says you are free to be who you want to be and to do what you want and a lived reality that constrains that creates a lot of the conflict that prevents our organizations from being more efficient and from and creates a lot of the issues that we see. So, um, you know, a lot of people who hate their jobs because they've been promised one thing and they enter the workforce and any opportunity to, and this is getting you know, more and more severe uh, with subsequent generations, first millennials, now Gen Z, all being raised with more and more, um, or with stronger values of your voice matters, you have a choice in where you want the world to go, you have a responsibility to shape the world around you, you know, go and be whoever you want to be. And then they get to the workforce and they're muzzled and, and you know, put in a cubicle. Um, that creates conflict and that creates inefficiencies. People drag their feet because they don't feel like they're listened to. People fight to try to make sure that their voices are heard. So you end up with more conflict in terms of how decisions are made. Um, you end up with people not putting their best work in because they don't feel like they're valued. And we've tried all sorts of incentives, traditional monetary incentives to try to reconcile this difficulty, whereas the problem is actually structural. People raised in a democratic society will work most effectively if they are given the same power, rights, privileges, and opportunities afforded within democratic society within what's a democratic corporation. And so the way that works is you allow people to self-select the work they want to do. You allow people to have a voice in the direction of the organization. You allow people to, um, if they have an expertise in a particular area, contribute to determining how the work should be done. Uh, a lot of people, when they hear the idea of a democratic corporation, they think of it as, oh, everyone's going to vote on everything. And then it's going to become super slow and lethargic and nothing's going to happen because everyone's spending all their time talking. Whereas 
when it's implemented properly, what you see in practice is that work gets done more efficiently because the people who have the expertise in accomplishing a particular execution-oriented task are able to experiment, try different things, see what works, and then share that information with everyone else on the one hand. And then you get greater alignment amongst everyone within the organization with the direction that's set because everyone actually has a voice in what direction the organization is going to go in. So if you're told, okay, now you're going to move in this direction and you didn't have a voice, you didn't have a choice that let's say Facebook is going to start producing a higher volume of ads and you're like, I don't want to do that. You're going to go back to your desk and drag your feet. Whereas if you had an opportunity to say, okay, like, here's what I think is important and here's where I think we should go as an organization. And everyone contributes that and recognizes that their voice is heard and then actually has a choice in what direction the organization goes in. Then you have buy-in across all stakeholders. That means that even if not everyone agrees with the end direction, you've still gone through the exercise of building consensus and allowing people to come to some sort of agreement that this is the direction that we're heading in. I'm okay with it and I am going to contribute to it because I recognize that it is the will of everyone within the organization that this is what we do. And so it's about creating opportunity, taking advantage of the full range of voices that are available and unleashing the creativity of individuals by allowing them the freedom to be able to speak up, experiment, and identify challenges before they can sink the organization. It increases the flexibility, it increases alignment, and it leads to better outcomes. And a classic example of this in the 1980s was when Japanese automotive industry um, completely overwhelmed and overtook the American. Um, automotive industry. And the reason for this was because, uh, let's say the Americans wanted to update a quality control process. It would take them a week to make the changes they'd have to. Whereas in what's known as the, now known as the, the Toyota production system or total quality management, um, you had these quality control groups of workers directly on the line who could um, identify a problem decide what they wanted to do. They were granted the autonomy to come together and say, okay, well, this isn't working. Let's try something else and make the change right then and there. And so what would take a week for the Americans to retool would take an hour for Toyota. And they were able to vastly increase their efficiency and their productivity and completely destroy the capabilities of the American automotive industry. And it's all because they trusted their workers to know their work better than the people who were further removed from the work itself to figure out what works best and execute against it. And I think that there's an entire new level of productivity that we can unleash if we can bring more of this trust and this freedom into how we do our work. What potential do corporations have uh, that people don't see? So I think um, structurally, if we go to the, the legal structure of the corporation, 
you're basically establishing a small government that has its own set of bylaws and rules and procedures and a mission. And the way that we run them right now, they all come out as cookie cutter, exactly the same you know, hierarchical structure. There's a CEO, there's a COO, there's a CTO, um, there's a kind of vertical, you know, just imagine the typical org chart hierarchy. They all follow Robert's rules for their board meetings. Um, and the mission is, you know, this company will do anything a corporation is allowed to do. Whereas the legal structure itself allows you know, anything you could imagine. And we just don't experiment with it. So, for example, you could create a corporation that, uh, for a silly example, you could have an organization that um, has a mandate that it has a mission if it does every five years the membership has to vote on whether or not it's still meeting that mission and if they don't get consensus then it dissolves automatically or you can build it so that it has to reinvent itself you know once every 10 years in order and like reimagine itself from the bottom up through a defined process in order to adapt to the changing needs of the market based on you know, some idea that um you know, eventually an organization will become so stodgy and inflexible that you just have to kind of burn it down and rebuild it from the ashes. So you call that like the Phoenix Corporation. Uh, you could have board meetings that resolve conflicts through a game of Go Fish. Like there's so much, there's essentially infinite flexibility in how we design and structure our organizations and how they're governed and how decisions are made and um, how work gets done that we don't even think about, much less experiment with. And that is a shame because it prevents us from innovating. It prevents us from identifying new ways to create productivity. And it prevents us from actually create, like unlocking the potential of the organization and everyone that works for it. I'm not sure how much you know about DAOs and Web3, but I'm. I'm. I'll. I hope you do know about DAOs. Um, I'm a huge founder fan of DAOs. Oh, um, perfect. Yeah. So, so and how do how do DAOs challenge the the corporation model, and and what do they offer that's new? DAOs are exciting because they're an opportunity to reinvent how we design our organizations, and even more exciting, I would say, than the structure of the DAO itself. Is the fact that the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization has gotten people thinking about how we can do things differently and what would it look like if we were to empower everyone within an organization and get their consent in to, to be part of the organization uh, how could we use that to empower more people and be more productive than what we have right now and most importantly how can we use technology to facilitate that? How can we get rid of the inefficiencies that exist with these like traditional classic bureaucracies, uh, automate away the painful work and enable everyone within the organization to be as maximally creative and output oriented as possible because the role of the individual within the organization is to create and decide as opposed to um, purely 
execute a designated task. And the computer within that organization is the one that then goes and executes the repeat rote boring task. So it frees the individual to actually um, exercise their full autonomy and explore their fullest potential and applies the computer in the way it always should have been used in the corporation, which is to take away all the stuff that prevents a person from fulfilling their potential and contributing in the most effective way possible to the growth and development of that organization. We're approaching the one hour mark. Do you have 10, 15 minutes more? I can do another five, 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, okay. Hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the, the Alberta question because that's on my mind right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think Alberta should be the home of crypto in Canada because you know both crypto people and Albertans are libertarian, suspicious of centralized governments, proponents of personal responsibility and merit, and Alberta is also very desperate to diversify its economy, which makes its regulations a lot more um, welcoming to fintech. Uh, do you think, but, but, and I asked you this in, in, in your DMs a couple of weeks ago, and you said that Toronto is probably the one place for crypto to be in in Canada because there's the University of Toronto with its education hub and, and tech and all of that. So, what are your right. thoughts on, on 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 that? I think if crypto in Canada is following the model in the United States, then it is most likely that. Uh, Toronto will become the hub for crypto in Canada just because there's the greatest proximity to the financial regulators and the banks. So the, the fintech infrastructure that runs our country, um, which is why New York City is the heart of crypto in the United States. Um, and Miami is just kind of where they all go to chill, party, and have a better quality of life. Um, with that said, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for Alberta to become a hub for crypto A because of a friendlier regulatory atmosphere, but also because there's such an incredible degree of technical talent out of the in mathematics and actual cryptography out of uh, University of Alberta system uh, that is kind of just for the taking and what matters is for the you know, early community to start being built out there in a way that's already started happening here in Toronto um, that could finally create the opportunity for Alberta to become that hub but there there has to be the catalyzing element that creates the community gets the regulators looking at attracting crypto and creating this like ideal hub for web3 and crypto companies um, and working with those companies to create a positive regulatory atmosphere um, that you know hasn't entirely been done yet. Um, with Binance moving to Alberta there's a or opening a new office there there's an opportunity for that to happen and um, Canada historically has been kind of a pioneer in creating special economic zones to attract particular industries. Uh, mining, Toronto is the world capital for mining for exactly that reason. They have the best 
court system, legislation, and the most uh, positive uh, taxation environment. And so all the mining companies are based out of Toronto. The same thing happens in biotech for Basel and Switzerland. Oh, they're all headquartered there because it's a positive regulatory environment that has better taxation rules than anywhere else on the planet. And so there, there is an opportunity for, you know, Edmonton or Calgary to look at what are the needs infrastructurally and legislatively that would allow this market to take off. And how can we incentivize the companies to take advantage of the economic opportunity here and to build uh, structures to allow them to do that. I think that would be great for us because we need to diversify the number of hubs in Canada um, and not just have you know, Toronto be downtown Canada. I don't know what it is right now. Fair enough. Uh, did you have any final thoughts or things you wanted to share? Um, I mean, I appreciate you inviting me on to chat. It's always, I always enjoy our chats. And I, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for us to rethink how we work, especially now that um, we're coming into conflict with you know, another emerging world power, China, that has a vastly larger population than us. Um, if we are to effectively compete against, basically compete in the new geopolitical world of the 21st century, we have to find ways to increase the productivity per worker far beyond what exists right now and far beyond the standard and the baseline that we have right now. And as of right now, the productivity per worker has more or less stagnated for the past 10 years or so. And technologies, actual hard technologies, haven't done that. They haven't allowed us, in spite of the promise that new productivity tools would increase our productivity, uh, the productivity data doesn't show that. And the reason is because we are creating new technologies and putting them in environments that don't take advantage of their potential. And so now we have to like zoom out a little bit, look at the structure, look at how do we work with each other? What is the context and the environment within which we do that work that determines how the technology is used and how is that preventing us from using that technology to its fullest potential? And then to take that one step further, how can we redesign how we interact and how we do work to fully take advantage of the technology so that we can actually be as productive as A, we are capable of being and B, the technology is supposed to allow us to be. And the gap right now is that we are creating the technical solutions, but we are not creating the social machine to allow those new technologies to actually do what they're designed to do. And so that is what we're looking to solve, essentially, is how do we put the power to redesign that machine in everyone's hands? And how do we get people to actually run those experiments and see what else is possible so we can increase that productivity and unlock everyone's potential and let them do work they actually want to do? 
All right. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to Letters from a Contrarian, James. It's my absolute pleasure. And um, you know, stay warm. I know we're getting some pretty frigid weather these days. So.